What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Back to you today from the front lines of COVID-19. Here today with Dr. David Moskowitz, who graduated from Harvard Medical School, trained for seven years in internal medicine, biochemistry, and nephrology at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and is a pioneer in the field of medical genomics. I want to point out today that Dr. Moskowitz brings some very interesting and curious insights into the field of treating COVID-19, some of which are in direct opposition to others who have been on my podcast and others who are more streamlined in the media. So let me first just lay out the fact that my goal here and intention is to bring you all sides, all insights, a variety of opinions, because the reality is a lot of what we have right now is opinion. We do have some studies now coming out and we are learning more, but the more that we collaborate and bring together experts in the field of medicine and science, the more we can ensure that we aren't coming at it from a narrow viewed approach. So I am not taking any sides with regard to my guests and what I believe or don't believe. What I do believe is that the more information and collaboration we can do, I think the better off we'll be in finally ending this pandemic. So I hope you appreciate Dr. Moskowitz's insights and listen with an open mind and an open heart and share them because I do believe that the more information that we have, the more likely we are to get to a point where this is under control. So enjoy and stay safe. I am so honored to bring on Dr. Dave Moskowitz to the podcast as part of the bonus COVID-19 from the Frontlines series. I saw a few posts from him recently on LinkedIn and I reached out not knowing if he would say who was this crazy person or if he would jump on and he jumped on and was so gracious to give us some of his time. I really liked and was curious about some of his concepts and hypotheses around COVID-19 and some of the treatment options. And so I wanted to dive a little bit deeper to give you guys also his insights. So thank you so much for being here, Dr. Moskowitz. It's my greatest pleasure. I really appreciate that. Can you give the listeners just a little bit of insight into your background and the work that you do now? So, um, you know, I'm at the end of my life. Uh, Most of my classmates from uh, Harvard Med School have retired by now. Um, I have uh, kind of submarines, um, you know, falling ever further downwards on the pecking order, uh, but have remained curious about diseases because they're actually about the only real enemies we have. And um, finally, after uh, paying attention to disease my whole life, or what seems like my whole life, um, I'm... uh, you know, all the science and and the social media and stuff is coming together. So, so you know, there's never been a better time for public health than now. And um, 
you know, it really is the time where the power of one is obvious. Yeah, completely agreed. I, I do think that there is a great amount of collaboration going on amongst the brightest minds in science. And um, I certainly put you in that in that pile. And I'm so happy to be able to bring your insights and your understanding of what's going on to the masses. So let's go ahead and dive into maybe just a basic understanding of the pathophysiology of COVID-19 with specific highlights on immune cells um, called eosinophils and macrophages. So um, I, I have not seen a COVID-19 patient myself and I'm relying entirely on the literature, specifically a Chinese paper um, whose reference I should just give. It's PubMed ID number for your listeners, uh, it's a two, four, five, eight digit number, 32077115 for the aficionados. You just go to PubMed, uh, which is ncbi.gov, and you stick those eight numbers into the search window, and it'll come up with this paper by Zhang et al. And what they did was um, report on their first 140 uh, COVID-19 patients, which is a very decent number for any kind of um, case series. And uh, what was remarkable about those patients is for a disease that looks exactly like an asthma attack, they didn't have a single asthma patient. And the other thing is uh, asthma attacks look exactly like emphysema exacerbations, and they only had two COPD patients. On the other hand, they had 20 patients with drug hypersensitivities, which is about 10 times higher than you'd see in a group that size. Maybe one or two people might have an allergy to penicillin or something. And the other thing was that two people had urticaria, which is uh, skin wheels, which is very rare. I mean, it's maybe one in a thousand patients. You get very excited when somebody has urticaria. So here are these two eosinophil disorders, um, drug sensitivity, but especially urticaria, wheels, skin wheels, which only means eosinophils, and nobody with asthma or COPD that you'd expect. So um, I used to think that COVID-19 was just a macrophage disorder, like because macrophages begin the innate immune response. And I actually thought that ARDS and ACE inhibitors were uh, kind of a universal viral antidote and have been thinking that since 2003. Um, but it now appears that they're not nearly strong enough for this disease. And you really need to treat it like it's asthma. It's, it's uh, essentially an asthma attack in people who never had asthma before, but are predisposed to an eosinophil-mediated asthma attack by virtue of having hyperactive eosinophils. Really interesting to point out because I think back to when this all started and I think about, you know, talking to my, my friends and colleagues who have asthma and I told them, you know, her, you know, make sure you get a refills on your inhaler because my assumption at that point, ignorant as it was, was that asthmatics and those with existing lung disease would be at higher risk, and that's not what we're seeing, is which is what you just laid out, is the study showed that 
asthmatics were not those that we were most concerned about and that there was this large percentage or, or a decent amount of people who had an, an allergic type of um, response to medications. I don't know if they mentioned anything about food allergies, but in general, just sort of an, a higher allergic predisposition. So can you talk a little bit about what the understanding is or your understanding is of why that might be? So why asthmatics would not be somebody we would consider high risk for either the disease or for the severity of the disease and why we would be more worried about those who have a higher allergic predisposition, whether to medications or food or, um, or, or showing signs of urticaria? Well, I, I think your expectation and, and mine, uh, I mean, it's just common sense that asthmatics should get asthma, um, and, but they don't. So uh, how could they not get asthma when they're asthmatics? And the only possible explanation that I've been able to think of is that they've got their inhalers already. And the minute they get short of breath, they've been taught to puff away on their oral steroids and maybe their oral albuterol. And that's enough to break the episode. Yeah, super interesting, you know, how how much shifts when we just get a little bit more information and we're just kind of incrementally getting a little bit more information, a little bit more information. So, um, and, you know, to note, a lot of asthmatics are now taking the allergic type medications like Singular. And so um, talk a little bit about that. So talk a, talk a little bit about your hypothesis that taking a more of an antihistamine approach for the general public, because obviously the general public is not going to go rush out and get an albuterol inhaler if they don't have an indication for it. But what can the general public do with regard to antihistamines, potentially intranasal steroids, some of the concepts that you have shared? Well, um, the general public, I think, should rush out and get Flonase or Nasacort. I mean, I think um, they can take anything they want to try to reduce the effectiveness of eosinophils. Antihistamines might be a great idea. But the problem is with asthma, nobody uses antihistamines. Maybe they use Montelukast, Singular, to inhibit leukotriene synthesis. Um, but I've never been impressed that much. Um, it was just coming out when I was a resident. I never got used to using it. Seems like only allergists put people on it. You know, for us, for me, I've only seen inhaled steroids, uh, albuterol, selmeterol, formeterol, these beta-2 agonists that make your heart race. Um, but they are not nasal. Um, they're uh, actually oral. So it's, it's and combo drugs like Adverdiscus. The minute you go oral, you have to have a prescription. So what I'm I'm thinking you should do with COVID-19 is, you know, take whatever you're taking. If you happen to be on, on Flonase because you've got allergic rhinitis or, or runny nose or sinusitis like my son has, then you're lucky. You probably won't get sick. If you happen to be taking an antihistamine because you've got urticaria chronically and it, and it frequently flares up so that it's a nuisance, enough for you to take a pill every day, great. But I wouldn't actually go out and take these pills necessarily. Um, what I'd do is wait to see if you got symptoms and then I'd pounce. I mean, I, I 
I wouldn't waste any time messing around with antihistamines or montelukaster ARBs or ACE inhibitors like I initially thought. I would I would get your Flonase. I'd walk down to the drugstore and get your Flonase over the counter or Nasacord. It's the same thing, fluticasone. And I'd start puffing away, um, puffing each nostril once a day or twice a day. And if you weren't better by the next day because you end up on a vent for four days with this disease, I would call the doctor and get a prescription for an oral steroid that goes into your lungs and, and maybe a combination inhaler like Adverdiscus. And um, I would not play around with this disease any more than I would play around with asthma, which can easily kill people. And what we're doing now is essentially we're using supportive care ventilators for asthma patients, which makes absolutely no sense at all. Mm, okay. And I, I think that this is important to point out because these medication, the Flonase Nasacort as of a few years ago, I don't know the year, but they're over the counter now. So when we talk about some of these treatment options with hydroxychloroquine being, you know, very much talked about, it's not widely available, uh, at least right now, it's difficult to get that. And so although everybody wants to rush out and get that, we don't, we don't have the supplies and it's prescription only. And so what you're suggesting is an intranasal steroid, which is very easily obtainable over the counter without a prescription, comes with really little to no risk, maybe some, um, you know, irritation in the nose, possibly minor nosebleeds. These are things that people with allergic rhinitis who use them anyways deal with. So they're already in use widely in those who need them. And so they're not novel medications or medications that we don't know much about. They're in wide use already and they're used for different reasons and, and they're easily obtainable. How do you see, or maybe you don't see, but how do you see this potentially working alongside the um, concept of hydroxychloroquine and, and azithromycin, or do you not necessarily believe in that approach, um, or do you see that kind of happening later on in a more severe case? Kind of what, where do you see see that fitting in? Well, I'm I'm glad I'm speaking to a PharmD because if anybody can comment on the safety and practicality of nasal steroids, you certainly can. Um, I don't uh, trust hydroxychloroquine at all. And azithromycin, I think, is already overused. And um, and since uh, azithromycin kills people through cardiac arrhythmias and the and plaquenil and chloroquine lengthen QT intervals and can cause torsade de plant and VTAC and VFib, I would I think it's a horrible public health idea to expose the population to two potentially arrhythmogenic drugs, especially combined together. The, the papers that I've read out of Didier Raoult and his unit in Marseille show that um, hydroxychloroquine and, uh, and the ZPAC reduce nasal carriage of COVID-19, you know, to just three or four days as opposed to a week or two in controls, but do absolutely nothing for outcomes. So clinical outcomes are actually worse, were worse in the hydroxychloroquine group um, than they were in the 16 controls. So the first paper showed, you know, compared 26 chloroquine to 16 control patients. Of the 26 patients, 
uh, three went on a vent, one died, and one stopped chloroquine because it, uh, he got nauseated. One just ran out of the hospital. None of the 16 controls had any, you know, any problem. They didn't go to the ICU. They didn't die. Um, and and yet there was a second paper of this consecutive case series that had gotten extended out to 80, where they did mention the five who did poorly, uh, but showed that they all cleared their nares of COVID-19 earlier. Well, big deal if what you die of is an overly exuberant innate immune response. I mean, 80% of asthma and COPD exacerbations are caused by viruses. We don't even care what the virus is. We certainly don't give antivirals to asthma patients. We just treat their um, overly exuberant um, uh, immune response which is adaptive in some cases if the virus is well known, but um, can be innate if it's a brand new virus. And certainly the influenza virus that changes every year is a novel virus. And it's, so it's an innate immune response uh, that we're dealing with with influenza all the time. And, um, and it's, it's rhinovirus and coronavirus and influenza virus primarily that triggers asthma and uh, COPD exacerbations. I think we should be treating COVID-19 as if it's uh, somebody's first asthma attack, uh, even though they never had asthma before. Really interesting. And I know that there is there are two camps. Well, there's multiple camps of thoughts, but there are two camps. There are those who are really staunchly in support of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin and those who maybe aren't for various reasons. Some are some are similar and some some have their own reasons. But I think that it's an interesting um, concept of treating this as an asthma exacerbation because it's true when we do have an asthma or COPD exacerbation, we're, we're certainly not loading on the antivirals. And so um, it's an interesting concept. So for, do you know of anybody who has, uh, um, you know, a physician who has utilized this approach or even anecdotal people who have begun the symptoms, started feeling the symptoms and begun this approach with intranasal steroids, possibly antihistamines, possibly moving on to oral steroids? Um, any idea of what that's doing in in sort of the front lines in the real world? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. And one of the things that's so frustrating is with close to a million patients, we have absolutely no treatment results. So, you know, the U.S. has known about this pandemic since December, and it's three months later, and all we're doing is being told to wait for a vaccine which will come out maybe in two or three years, or remdesivir, which may you know, come out by the summer or, or next Christmas or something. I mean, I, I feel that it's, uh, you know, it's been a horrible example of public health by our public health authorities who haven't, who basically embraced 14th century public health, namely the quarantine, and haven't tried to deploy any of the already existing meds that we have. Um, this is not what would have happened in the 50s, um, you know, when polio was defeated. I, I have absolutely no idea what has happened, what people are taught in schools of public health these days. 
but treatment is clearly not one of them. Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's. It seems like there's, you know, more confusion by the by the minute than there is any any real direction, which is why I think it's so important to bring on a variety of leaders in in the field in science and medicine to just kind of talk about their insights because we we hear from the same people over and over again on TV, and um, not not everybody is sort of thinking outside the box. So, what is your hope um, for for as we move forward? Um, or and maybe we can even talk a little bit about your thoughts on on the convalescent plasma idea. But what is sort of your hope for treatment as we as we move forward? And what approach, if you were in the public health arena, what um, sort of approach would you be taking that might be a little bit different or more robust than what's happening currently? Well, if I was um, the COVID nineteen czar. Um, I would stop the testing. I would stop the quarantine. I would, uh, or go easy on it for a week. And during that week, I would contact uh, hospitals with COVID-19 patients, uh, like in New York, uh, in Louisiana, New Orleans now. Um, Would have been great to contact the nursing home in Kirkland, Washington. I would go where the patients are because ultimately they're they're the gold mine, and you know these can be small pilot studies, and um, I don't want to get into treating ARDS because once people have been in the hospital for a week or two and they're on vents and they're hypotensive, uh, it gets very hard to save them. But what I would try to do is get the patients in the hospital who are COVID-19 positive are already using nasal cannulae. So they're, they're already oxygen deficient, already are feeling chest tightness. I would treat them as if they had, um, you know, a very severe asthma attack. I'd give them at least oral uh, inhaled steroids, if not uh, IV cyamedrol, probably IV uh, steroids. I'd give them uh, albuterol inhalers, uh, maybe because uh, there are theoretical reasons why that might keep pulmonary uh, endothelial cells uh, more intact and tight junctions from leaking. Um, but really, what I want to do is move to people earlier in the in the disease because I think, like asthma, I think the time to to arrest this disease is in the first four days as outpatients. And so what I'd want is I'd want anybody who had symptoms of shortness of breath, chest tightness, fever, sore throat, um, loss of of sense of smell and, and taste, which actually is routine for people with nasal polyps. Um, I'd, I'd want anybody with these initial symptoms to start taking a nasal steroid like Flonase or Nasacort. And I bet you could uh, nip the disease in the bud. And and then I would just recommend uh, that to everybody based on symptoms, forget about testing and um, forget this ventilator business and you know making a green stand in the hospital when it's largely too late. Mm, super interesting. Um, let's go back a little bit to your concept on on uh, releasing the quarantine. Is that tell me tell me more about that concept? 
Well, see, these pilot studies, I mean, you want symptoms to get better by the next morning. And so it doesn't take, you know, a year and a half like the Minnesota Losartan study. I mean, they're going till April of 2021, they're recruiting. In a week, you can, you can get enough uh, pilot data, maybe a dozen patients, if all 12 feel better the next day. Um, that's very hopeful, and you can re you can release this crippling quarantine, which is is a public health disaster on a much grander scale than the viruses. I mean, everybody is losing their job, losing paychecks. You know, over half the country lives from paycheck to paycheck, and and they haven't had a paycheck for you know at least a month or two. And so this is absolute nonsense. I mean, this is rule number one in public health. You eat. If you don't have food on the table, you don't have much public health. Really interesting. So the, you know, the concept of, of, you know, not needing the quarantine is more because if the approach is, here's what to do at the, at the very onset of symptoms, and we can control it early on in the course, and we don't get to the point of, needing ventilators and, um, you know, extra hospitals to have extra ventilators. Um, and so the, the, that's the concept, of course, obviously we would need that to, to show, you know, everybody wants evidence-based medicine. And of course we, even if we just had a few anecdotes of, of that moving forward in the right direction, but, but also you can, and maybe you can even comment on how it's difficult to have solid evidence-based medicine even when we have decades of experience with any given drug or disease and to try to require that out of a novel virus is um, impossible. It's, it's not, doesn't, it's not, um, doesn't carry too much logic that we are going to have that kind of data with this. So can you can kind of maybe mention that before we wrap up? Well, I think we live in an extremely anti-innovative time in medicine. I don't think medicine has been this stuck in the in the wool, um, stuck in the mud since the 14th century, which is why we're using quarantine, which was developed uh, in 1350 during the Black Death. We're still using a 14th century modality. We couldn't be more anti-innovative. Evidence-based medicine is probably the premier tool for stopping medicine from being at all innovative. In the 20s and 30s, 1920s and 30s, this would have been solved by somebody in New Jersey, you know, looking at a dozen consecutive COVID-19 patients. But now you need an IRB, it has to be published, it has to be published in a certain journal, the size of the study has to be a certain size, it has to have a randomized control population. I mean, there's so many hoops you have to jump through that nobody ever publishes anything. And it may be that with the million patients that we've already had, people have done pilot studies, but we don't know about them because they can't get published anywhere. So mm -hmm. I think the demand for evidence-based medicine hinders our advances. And you gotta remember, it's still debatable whether to use digoxin. And that particular debate has been going on for 300 years. And how to anticoagulate in atrial fibrillation it's highly controversial, although been, there have been tens of thousands of papers on that. So it, I, I just think that people need to get back to common sense, primary care kind of public health ideas, 
and uh, let people who see patients be the authorities and not people who, you know, stopped seeing patients as soon as they could after residency and have been doing nothing but going to meetings ever since. Really interesting um, insights, Dr. Moskowitz. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you being vocal about your your thoughts, your opinions, your insights from the years of medicine that you've been practicing. And um, we know we're definitely sharing all the insights here. Um, you know, some of them might clash, some of them might not, but I think it's important for people to hear all of them so that they can um, maybe shift their even understanding. So I appreciate your time today, Dr. Moskowitz. It's my, it really is a pleasure to have a voice finally. Thank you to Dr. Moskowitz for sharing his time and insights with us today. I really think that we would be remiss as a medical community if we did not use this platform and others that are similar to pass the mic over to the experts in medicine and science and get the conversation going, sometimes in different directions, because it's only when we collaborate and work together that we can truly end something so significant as this pandemic. Thanks again, Dr. Moskowitz, and I hope that you stay tuned for more from the front lines. Stay well and stay safe.